0: Conspiracy Unlimited, with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, the 1964 Socorro, New Mexico UFO encounter.
2: According to everything in the files, Zamora was chasing a speeder in Socorro, and he heard a roar off in the distance, and he thought a dynamite check that was on the edge of town had blown up. So he broke off the pursuit of the speeder, and he went over in that direction and came up over a hill... And looking down in an arroyo, he saw what he thought was an overturned car. And he drove down close to it, got out of the police car, walked even down closer to it, got fairly close to it, and noticed, two. and he used a, a various terms. I think he said people once, according to one of the transcripts in the Blue Book files, but he mostly called them things.
1: Have you ordered your bottle of carbon-60 yet? The mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking a tablespoon of this miracle molecule suspended in olive oil for a few months now. We're taking the purest form of C60. It's called ESS60, and it's produced by our friends at c60evo.com. C60 in oil is a powerful antioxidant that moves through the body like a magnet to attract and neutralize free radicals. It can slow down aging and reduce cellular damage. C60 can improve the immune system and reduce inflammation naturally. Often we hear about improved vision and substantially keener mental focus. The mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping much better, we're both pain-free, no joint stiffness or back pain, and that's why I call Carbon 60 the miracle molecule. It's great for us humans and it's great for our pets. To order go to c60evo.com that's c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. Again To order your bottle of ESS-60, go to c60evo.com slash R-E-F-R-S-1.
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome to your Friday. Kevin Randall is standing by, one of the preeminent UFO researchers in the world. And he'll be here to discuss one of the best documented UFO incidents in history. And yes, this one also happened in New Mexico. So it goes right up there along with Roswell and the Aztec-New Mexico incident. Although Socorro is more recent. Roswell, of course, in 1947, Aztec in 48. The Socorro incident occurred in 1964. Before we get to that, a reminder that I'm filling in for George Norrie tonight, Friday, Feb 14th on Coast to Coast AM. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. The mighty Aphrodite and I will have to reschedule our Valentine's dinner until next week. If you've never had a chance to listen to Coast to Coast AM, you really have to check this remarkable overnight radio program out. Go to coasttocoastam.com and click on Media, then Local Stations to find an affiliate near you. The UFO landing at Socorro has uh, been wrapped in controversy almost from the moment that police officer Lonnie Zamora watched a craft descend and land. Zamora saw alien beings near the craft and a symbol on its side, but he was told that he shouldn't mention either. It's all documented in Encounter in the Desert, which reveals for the first time exactly what Zamora saw in that arroyo back in 1964 and what an examination of the landing revealed to investigators. Now, Socorro wasn't a standalone case. Other sightings, some of them nearly as spectacular as Zamora's were reported at the time. A study of the Air Force investigation of this case reveals an effort at first to learn the truth that mutated or that uh, mutated into a clever attempt to hide the information from the public. Encounter in the desert reveals all this and much more. Kevin Randall is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who served as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and an intelligence officer in Iraq. He studied anthropology and journalism at the University of Iowa and holds advanced degrees. From the American Military University and California Coast University, he's been studying UFOs for 50 years. He's published dozens of books about the subject, including Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky. He hosts a radio show on the X-Zone Broadcast Network and a blog, A Different Perspective. He's appeared on dozens of television and radio shows, including The Today Show and Good Morning America. Wow, what a pleasure to welcome Kevin Randall. Kevin, how are you?
2: I'm fine, but I'm not sure I want to be linked to the Today Show.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, yeah, there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things going on in the MSM, and uh, that's all right. We're not going to hold that against you. You know what? You you were able to sort of break through that glass ceiling and get the word out on the MSM. So, however you chose to use the Today Show, good for you. But we're delighted to have you here, Kevin.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here.
1: Now. You were aware of the UFO incident at Socorro, New Mexico for a long time, obviously, but when did it all start to impact you? I mean, when you started to sort of put the the pieces together.
2: Well, part of it was investigating the Roswell case, and we were over on the plains of San Augusto, and I say we, Don Schmidt and I, and of course we were in Socorro, so we asked a few questions around there. So there's always kind of an interest there. But on my radio program... I had on Ben Moss and Tony Angiola
3: <clears throat>
2: wow I, I suddenly have a fog in my throat I don't believe this <laughs> <clears throat> anyway excuse me anyway they had said a couple of things on the program that sparked my attention I never got good answers for one of them was they, that they said that there were three witnesses who'd called into the police prior to Zamora seeing the thing land out on in, out in the outskirts of town and I said did you see the police log and they never answered the question and I'm not sure why we never got an answer to the question. But that got my interest, and they said uh, a couple of other things like that that I, I found kind of provocative. So I looked at, um, I got back and looked at the Air Force file, the whole Air Force file. And it, going through it, I found a report from a fellow named Captain Richard Holder. He was an Army officer who had, uh, well, I don't know what's going on here.
1: Do you want to get some water? Do you have some water
2: nearby? Yeah, I got I got that. Wow. This has never happened to me before. I'm so embarrassed, I'm turning bright red.
1: No, 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 no.
2: No. Anyway, um, Captain Richard Holder was the upraged commander at the uh, White Sands uh, Missile Range, White Sands Proving Grounds. And uh, his duty station, White Sands is really based down near Alamogordo, quite a, far, quite a ways from Socorro, but his duty station was much closer to Socorro, so he lived in Socorro, and within an hour, hour and 20 minutes of the landing, he was called in um, either by the FBI or his uh, executive officer alerted him. But he went into the Socorro police station, so he's talking to Lonnie's forum. Right. The whole point of this is that he wrote a short report that very night uh, within hours of the landing. And in this report, it said that three people had called into the police station and a reported, uh, either a blue flame in the sky or an object in the sky. That verifies what, what Ben Moss and Tony Angiola had said. And it wasn't in the police ro- logs, but it was in this official report that Holder had written. No names are attached to it because the police dispatcher didn't bother to write down their names. I'm thinking, you know, if I was investigating this case in 1964, one of the things I would have said, um, because we knew the path that the thing flew in and flew out of, I would have gone to the area where the uh, thing overflew and knocked on doors until I found some people who had witnessed the thing. We could get some names attached to that and some better descriptions. Sure. Uh, That never happened. I don't understand why. Unbelievable. Carl and Jim Lorenzen, who were the uh, leaders of the Aero Phenomenal Research Organization out of Tucson, Arizona, who actually had one time lived in Alamogordo, were there within 48 hours this would be something that I would have thought they would have done but they didn't um Hynek was there J. Allen Hynek, who was the Air Force consultant of Blue Book he hmm. was there within days he didn't bother with it the official Air Force investigator uh, Sergeant David Moody he didn't bother Ray Stanford was there from NICAP he didn't bother I mean, all these people were there investigating this thing and nobody bothered to find these other witnesses which I think would be very important we have um Zamora story, and it was taken down again, literally within hours of the sighting uh, by by Holder and the FBI agent, a guy named Arthur Burns. So we have good records of that. And then we have the other investigations that were done. There was um, a report in the April Bulletin by the Lorenzens. They were there within 48 hours, so we've got a good record there. Uh, we've got Heineck's report. We've got a report from a guy named um, Connor, who was a allegedly... I say allegedly, um, the public affairs officer at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. He had driven, actually, Heinick down to Socorro. Uh, he's He's got a report in there. Um, he had an additional duty as the base UFO officer, which I thought was kind of strange. But So we, we've got his report. So there's all kinds of documentation leading up to this. So we've got very good documentation of what happened Right within literally... Hours of the thing landing.
1: Right when you talk to uh, to Ben Moss and Tony Angiola, they they also interviewed. Uh, I believe at the time it was the only living person who had investigated the case, and that was a gentleman by the name of Ray Stanford.
2: Stanford, Stanford, yes, Stanford, yes. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, tell me, tell me about Ray Stanford.
2: Well, I actually, I, I interviewed him as well, um, but he. Uh, he was a uh, member of the Aerial phenom- I'm sorry, uh, NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, the Washington DC group under, under um, Donald Kehoe. But he was out there, uh, he talked to Zamora, he talked to Sam Chavez, who was Zamora's pal, and when Zamora, after the, the thing had taken off, Zamora called the police station and asked for Sanford, I'm sorry, uh, for Chavez to come out. Chavez was a state policeman. And so he interviewed all those people. He talked to the radio um, a reporter who interviewed them as well. He talked to, um, well, he was there with the radio reporter in a restaurant going to have dinner. And these two older women came up and said they had seen the object or heard the object. Audio witnesses is what Stanford calls them. And, but he, never, he didn't get the names and he didn't follow up on it. And when I talked to him, I said, well, do you have the names in your file? And he said, well, they'd be dead by now. They were middle-aged at the time. And I'm thinking, but it would tell me where they lived in Socorro.
1: Right, right. And,
2: and I might be able to find somebody in Socorro.
1: They would have family. They would have neighbors and yes, friends that they would have talked to.
2: Precisely.
1: We we oft, we always talk about Roswell and, and, to a lesser extent, maybe the Aztec UFO incident. But as you point out, uh, Socorro is one of the best... Uh, examples in, in in Project Blue Book, but still it, it flies under the radar, no pun intended. Um, why is that, do you suppose?
2: Because things like Roswell have the possibility of providing all the evidence you'd need to prove alien visitation. With Socorro, you have an observation by a police officer. You have some landing traces, which are interesting in and of themselves. You have... Um, official investigation. You have a lot of things going on with Socorro. But when you get down to it, you have Lonnie Zamora as the main observer. You have indications of other witnesses who are lost to, uh, I guess, the fog of time. So it doesn't have the same robust nature of something like Roswell, although Roswell has kind of lost his robustness in Recent years, I did a book just last year called Roswell in the 21st Century, looking at it, attempted to look at it in a dispassionate way to see where we stood on it, found that a lot of what we believed about Roswell turned out not to be true, and a lot of the people who'd come forward or had been found to talk about the case really were basically making up their stories, and that hurt the whole entire case. With Socorro, you don't have a lot of places to go to talk to people, you don't have a lot of witnesses. Uh, you can look at the pictures of the landing traces, you can look at the uh, analysis of the soil samples and the vegetation that were taken, and that sort of thing, but when you get down to it, you don't have the same robust nature. To to kind of understand Socorro, you be, you have to begin looking at what was going on around Socorro at the time, which is w- one of the things I did, uh, other other cases that affect the uh, the Socorro case. There was one in La Madera, in uh, northern New Mexico, it took place within, I think, 24 hours of of the Socorro landing, and you have the same sort of thing. The craft on the ground, it lifts off in a flame, and it leaves um, burns on the ground, which is suggestive of what happened at Socorro. Heinick, who was in Socorro, knew about the case, and he asked permission to go investigate it, and the Air Force said no. I'm thinking, I'm a consultant here, I'm a civilian, I'm going to talk to these people about it. But he didn't do that. The official Air Force investigator didn't do it. But that whole case came about, and was reported by the witness prior to the information getting about out about the Socorro case, so he didn't know about Socorro when he reported So I find that interesting. There were some other sightings that took place uh, south of... Socorro, basically on the White Sands missile range, looking off toward the west over the mountains there, that's are suggestive of the object that uh, Zamora had seen. So you put all of that together and it becomes a little bit more of a robust sighting. But nobody had really done that to this point. Everybody kind of talked about Socorro and then they would go off and, and leave it. They didn't talk about what was going on around it at the time and I thought that was important to look at as well.
1: Certainly. Well, for those not familiar intimately with the Socorro case, tell us about Lonnie Zamora and what he saw on uh, that night in 1964.
2: You mean there were people that don't know this story? <laughs> Hard to believe, but yes. Uh, according according to everything in the files, Zamora was chasing a speeder in in, uh, in Socorro, and he heard a roar off in the distance, and he thought a dynamite check that was on the edge of town had blown up, so he broke off the pursuit of the speeder, and he went over. In that direction and came up over a hill, and looking down in an arroyo, he saw what he thought was an overturned car, undertuned car, for crying out loud, overturned car. And he drove down close to it, got out of the police car, and walked even down closer to it, got fairly close to it, and noticed two. And he used a, a various terms. I think he said people once, according to one of the transcripts in the Blue Book files, but he mostly called them things. Um, talked about them being the size of uh, children or small adults. And that when one of them looked at him and saw him there, seemed startled, and they both disappeared around behind the landed craft. The craft had sat down, landed, by the time he got there. There was a sound like a vault door closing, and then the thing. there was a roar, and the thing lifted off, drifted horizontally for a while, and then shot up into the sky. He called uh, Sam Chavez right away, And Chavez there was there in a couple of minutes, and I I make that distinction because it's important because one of the suggestions that it was some kind of a hot air balloon that that we were experimenting with, although there's no evidence of that, and the point is it wouldn't have disappeared in the sky before Chavez got there. He would have seen it too, but he didn't. Uh, He was he went back to the police station and within at least within an hour, probably less. Uh, Burns and Holder, the Air Force, uh, the Army officer and the FBI guy, were there, basically interrogating him and talking to him about it, uh, to, to what he'd seen, talked about uh, the symbol he'd seen on it. Holder suggested to him, not in a way to suppress the information, but suggested that maybe we they'd not release what that thing looked like precisely, because that way, if other people had seen it and described the symbol, they would be able to eliminate right, the, right. the copycats. Burns suggested to him that maybe he didn't want, wouldn't want to talk about the alien creatures. Not, I say alien, that's my word. Right. Um, Zomora never talked about him being alien creatures or extraterrestrials, but the beings that he saw down there, uh, Burns suggested maybe he didn't want to talk about that because it would open him up to ridicule by other people in the press. And uh, that's kind of what he did. So eventually it came about that he really didn't see anything but white coveralls down below. Uh, by the craft although it, it's clear from the descriptions in the Project Blue Book files of what he said that they weren't more, it was more than just coverful, coveralls but he didn't see a lot of detail uh, about the beings the thing was on the ground for uh, a couple of minutes at the most and once it lifted off uh, he went down to see it Chavez showed up he went down they found a, an area a bush that was kind of still smoking and Chavez said that when he touched the bush it wasn't hot it was smoking but it it wasn't hot and only half of it had been burned which they found weird and some of the vegetation around the landing site had been burned and there were four distinct impressions on the ground which were according to the analysis made by the Air Force and the various investigators were pressed into the earth as opposed to excavated so something heavy had sat down there and pressed itself into the earth uh, and that and that becomes important. Philip Klass, uh said that you know there was an asymmetrical landing gear, and he put knitting needles through a Brillo pad on a map of the landing gear things and uh, showed how asymmetrical it was. But when you correct it for the terrain and make a couple of other measure- measurements, what you find out is the um, flame was in the center of it, and the landing gear were symmetrical but it was the terrain that made it look like they were asymmetrical. So Right, I mean, right. What you would expect, although I'm not sure that we can say that an alien race, if they're landing a craft on, in New Mexico, would necessarily be as anal about the uh, symmetry of the landing gear as we might be. You would expect them to be because it makes it more stable, but we don't know what the aesthetics of an alien race would be.
1: What do we know about Lonnie Zamora?
2: Johnny Zamora was a steady police officer who apparently handed out tickets speeding tickets to uh, the students, both high school and the ones at the uh, Mining Institute there, so they didn't care for him, but he was fuzz in the 1960s. Uh, he had been, uh, a guy, I think a soldier in, I say a thing, I, I don't know whether he was a soldier or Marine, I think he was a soldier in Korea. And he stayed with the New Mexico National Guard up to his retirement. He stayed on as a police officer some 15 years after this event, and then eventually took another city job until he retired. Uh, Heinick paid him kind of a left-handed compliment. in One of the reports said that, well, he didn't think that Lonnie Zamora was involved in a hoax because he wasn't astute enough to have perpetrated a hoax (laughs) on his own.
1: That is a backhanded compliment. Yeah,
2: yeah. which, attest to his honesty, I, I couldn't find anything that would suggest that he wasn't trustworthy, that he wasn't a good policeman. The most recent nonsense to come out is, well, he drank beer, and people saw him drinking beer in a tavern, I'm thinking, oh my God, he drank beer. Uh, nothing, nothing in any of the reports suggests he had been drinking before duty on April 24th when the thing landed. During duty or afterwards. And we've got two um, investigators, Holden and Burns. And Burns is an FBI guy, so this is kind of his meat and potatoes.
1: They were well, on the scene awfully quick, don't you think?
2: Well, he lived in he lived in uh, Socorro.
1: Oh, he did. Okay. That explains that. All right.
2: Yeah, as did Holder. So they lived in Socorro. They got there very, very quickly, as you say. But there's nothing in any of the reports to suggest any... Alcohol involved at all, and yet you we know, we're supposed to. And even if he became a, a the town drunk in the years after this thing, it would be relevant to the sighting of April of, of nineteen sixty four because there's no evidence that he was that prior to that, and no evidence that he was the town drunk at any point. I I, I don't understand the need to kind of bring this thing up um, that he that he would he would periodically be seen in a bar or a tavern having a beer or two, which he was. uh you know, I I can't think of many people I know who haven't been in a tavern and had a beer or two once in a while. Oh, so.
1: Precisely. Well, I mean, didn't this cause a bit of a media firestorm when it when it uh, first came out and oh, was was absolutely. Zamora interviewed by the national media?
2: Oh, absolutely. There was there were any number of reports in the newspapers uh that he had done uh, attempting it. He was very reluctant to talk. After a few days of this, because he could see some of the, the way he was being treated by the, uh, by the media, and other police officers wouldn't have anything to do with the media because, because of that, uh, Walter Cronkite reported it on his CBS Evening News program, and I remember seeing that as a kid. Uh, and, of course, that dates me, but you already said I'd been studying <laughs> UFOs for 50 years, and I was in Vietnam, so that pretty well... Ages me right there. They've got
1: you pegged now.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, it, yeah, it was, it was, you can go to your local newspaper and probably find a story or two about Lonnie Zamora and what was going on in New Mexico after that sighting took place. So, yes, it was a, it was a big story, um, in, in 1964. And, and it kind of led to, and I, I say kind of because this was a period when there were, lots of good UFO stories going on and eventually led to congressional investigations and eventually kind of inspired the Air Force to really nail down a university to study UFOs to end the Air Force investigation, which was the mission of it was end the Air Force investigation, but it ended up in doing all that sort of thing. And so you have this period at the end of the 1960s where there was an awful lot of interest in UFOs from an awful lot of people in an awful lot of different arenas.
1: When did um, Samora start to talk uh, more openly about the symbol that he saw on this craft?
2: I'm not sure that he really talked openly about it. And I say that because of, of what Burns had said to him and that sort of thing. But what happened was, after the object disappeared, I mean, like the moment it was out of sight, he drew on a scrap of paper a symbol. Right. And then later on that night, he drew the symbol for Holder, He signed both of those with his name, Lonnie Zamora, so we know pretty much what he was drawing. That symbol appears in a number of different reports in the Project Blue Book files. And um, a fellow named Rick Baca, who was a 14-year-old boy in 1964, um, drew what the object looked like based on Zamora's descriptions of it. His father, Baca's father, was, I think, a um, paralegal in the city attorney's office in socorro and zamora had gone to that um into the office to see if he was in any any kind of trouble he wanted to make sure he was in any kind of trouble and he described exactly what he'd seen and Baca senior described that to Baca jr and he made an illustration of it and they took it back in to show lonnie zamora and zamora said yeah that's pretty much what i saw but then under his guidance, they drew the symbol on it as well, and that a picture like that, a pic that picture actually appears in the April 1964 version of uh, the April Bulletin, and I think I think you can find those online now. So you get to 1964 April Bulletin, and you'll see uh, Baca's, um illustration with the symbol on it.
1: More of my conversation with Kevin Randall when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's time to bring in Colleen Forgus, the manager of our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. She's a nutritional therapist. Colleen, welcome once again.
2: Hi Richard, thanks for having me.
1: What do we have for immune support?
2: Today we're gonna talk about Immunitone Plus. This product is from a company called Designs for Health and it has antiviral, antibacterial abilities and also supports the body's own natural killer cell response. So it's supporting what your body already knows to do to help when you are you know, facing a, some type of an illness or chronic condition, this is a great product.
1: Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Colleen.
2: You're welcome, Richard. Have
3: a great day.
1: My pleasure. To order Immunitone Plus or any other product you've heard on this program, just visit strangeplanet.ca and click on the Full Script Dispensary button and then register. Remember, all orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
0: As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome back. Kevin Randall is with us. Encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Socorro, New Mexico, 1964. Police officer Lonnie Zamaro. Eyewitness to uh, an incredible event. And... um, I, I want to go back to the, uh, the symbol, and um, you described, or you, you explained where we can see it, but how would you describe it? And does it bear any resemblance, for example, to the symbols that a young Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, reported seeing on that what appeared to be sort of an eye beam back uh, in 1947?
2: Quick answer, no. There is no resemblance to the symbols that uh, Jesse Marcel saw, and nothing that his father saw either. It's I've, I've always kind of described it as an arc with a V underneath it with a line straight down to the, from the apex of the V and then a horizontal line across the bottom. Sort of a arrowhead-type thing with an arc over it. I always called it the umbrella symbol just because it was a simple way to describe it. The controversy came out in, uh, about that because, according to um, some of the newspaper reports, the symbol is reported as an inverted V with three lines through it. That's the symbol that supposedly they made up to kind of weed out the uh, copycats. And so you get both symbols being reported, although the newspapers talk about the inverted V, and it's not until a couple of weeks later you begin to see the, the proper symbol involved in that. Ray Stanford, interestingly, in his uh, first report, said that if you saw the umbrella symbol, that was the real symbol, and the inverted V with the three lines through it was the fake symbol. But when you get to his book... <laughs> Uh, some ten years later he's got it reversed now it's the inverted v is the real symbol and the umbrella symbol is not the real one. if you look at the documentation, Zamora drew the symbol twice, signed both of them it's the umbrella symbol I mean that to me is the uh, the epitome of of evidence there the guy signed the symbols and there was no reason for him to fake it in the files because they didn't expect anybody to see them
3: right, right. You know,
2: these were the Air Force files there's a number of other reports in the Uh, files, the Blue Book files, and it's the umbrella symbol almost universally throughout it. The lone exception is a letter written, I think it's September seventh, nineteen 1964, by Jalen Hynek. And he's got an inverted V, and he's got a line above the apex of the V and two lines between the legs of the V. Um, And I think it's just Hynek was confused by the discussions from the newspapers and all of that. There's another document that I have where I think, uh, Heineck was dic- dictating his impressions or what he'd seen to, uh, Jenny Zeidman. And he's, he makes a mention of the inverted V with the three lines through it from the newspapers, but he's also got the umbrella symbol in there as the real symbol. And I think he just got, got confused later on about what the symbol really looked like. Um, so I think, I think it's pretty well established. And I know Ben Moss and Tony Angiola and Ray Stanford don't agree with me on this. I think the evidence is pretty clear that the symbol he actually saw is, is the uh, umbrella's symbol. There's almost nothing in the logos for American corporations that resemble it. I mean, precisely, there's a uh, what international paper I think's got something that looks sort of like it. But I say sort of, it's not a, an exact match, so it's very confusing in that respect as well.
1: Has any other similar symbol ever shown up in either Blue Book or uh, or elsewhere?
2: I have not. I have not found anything. I know that um, at one point, Bud Hopkins was collecting symbols that had been seen by his abductees, and um, Carol Rainey, who is his ex-wife, and mm. was doing some work with it. Had asked me some stuff about that at one point, so I went back and tried to find as many examples of symbology as I could that had been mentioned throughout the uh, uh, history of UFOs, including the papers found by um, a guy named Reeves. and I can't remember. His tr- I keep wanting to say George Reeves, and that's not right.
1: That's uh, Superman. That's Superman.
2: <laughs> Who knows? Uh, the guy. The guy from Brooksville, Florida. Uh, his last name is Reeves, and he's not. He's not. Uh, Steve Reeves, either, who is Hercules, by the way. <laughs> um, but but he had a bunch of symbols on his paper um, that the Air Force had. Um, there's uh, other symbols. The Kecksburg craft had symbols around the bottom, right, that sort right. of thing. But I haven't ever found anything that matched that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of where we are on that. So And, and, and I, I think the skeptics have made a good point. You know, we don't have a lot of UFO sightings where there's... Symbols painted on the side. I mean, we, we look at an airplane and there's all kinds of crap painted on the sides of airplanes.
1: Right. It's not like we have an Audubon field guide. Yeah. Around- before I get back to my conversation with Kevin Randall, author of Encounter in the Desert, The Case for Alien Contact at Socorro, let's check in with story producer Albert Vinzel. What's coming up next week on the program, Albert?
0: We have Jeff Worster from the Center for Deep Political Research, and he's an expert on JFK, JFK versus the Deep
1: State. Trump should be listening to this one. All right, and who do we have in the second hour?
0: Our, our regular uh, pundit on the paranormal, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Ah,
1: yes, Rosemary, and uh, um, we're going to talk about angels for the full hour. All the various orders of angels, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and uh, Jeff Worster. All right, um, Kevin, it's you know it's no secret that that Project Blue Book was kind of a, a, a dog and pony show to, to 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 convince people that the Air Force was sort of taking. Uh, these UFO sightings seriously, but they weren't. Although, J. Allen Hynek, you know, started off as, um, a bit of a debunker, but kind of turned around. What role did Socorro and that sighting, um, serve in terms of his conversion? And did, what did he say later in life about the, the Socorro episode?
2: Later in life, he became, uh, an advocate for the extraterrestrial explanation for Socorro. I think that, about the time he got to Socorro, he was beginning to worry about um, the information and the, the evidence that he was seeing. Um, as you say, he started out as a bunker, well, or a scientist who didn't think there was anything to this, and he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon that, that might be of scientific value, not necessarily because it was... Uh, extraterrestrial alien in nature, but there was things to be learned. And I think that was one of the things we all need to look at as well, that even if it's not alien visitation, there's something going on, whether it's some kind of psychological phenomenon that we don't fully understand, or some kind of natural phenomenon we don't fully understand, but there are things that we could learn about it, uh, learn about humanity, just by studying the reaction to um, UFO sightings and the belief in UFOs and that sort of thing, which is not to say that there it, it may not be extraterrestrial in nature but but certainly we haven't been able to get our hands on the precise evidence and I think that you know that all comes down to what people will accept for evidence. Some people have a much lower threshold than than others. I'd like to see multiple chains of evidence, and that includes the testimony. Testimony is of, of, of a valuable resource when you're looking at these sorts of things, but something with physical evidence. And here at Socorro, we have that sort of physical evidence. And I think when the, when when Heinick looked at that sort of thing, and later on as he looked at some other cases that were uh, bubbling to the surface at the time, including the uh, sightings that took place in Michigan a couple of years later and that sort of thing, he began to see that there was much more to the UFO phenomenon than, um, he had originally thought. And it wasn't just the purview of a bunch of, uh, drunks or crazy people or, uh, people having hallucinations, but there was something more, uh, important there. And it was, it looked to him as if it was something, uh, physical in nature. I,
1: I asked you earlier about why Socorro was overshadowed by Roswell. And as you point out, I, and, An argument, a very strong argument, could be made. I think that Socaro is a far more documented case than is Roswell. And you talk about the physical evidence. Let's talk about the the landing traces. And and I'd like, I'd be very keen to know what happened to that uh, physical evidence.
2: One of the first things that they did, and I think it was Holder ordered, he had a bunch of MPs come up from uh, White Sands, uh, White Sands. and they cordoned off the area, so to speak, and they put rocks around the landing traces, the um, the <clears throat> landing gear imprints. And those were photographs. So, I mean, uh, in, in, in the book, there's photographs that are from the Air Force files of those landing traces, and they're very clear to be seen. And they were pressed into the ground as opposed to excavated, which means something heavy sat there. There was also uh, a couple of circular... Um, impressions in the ground would would have been behind the object when it sat there and the impression is that that was like a ladder that came out of a hatch and it was adjusted a couple of times so you've got a, a number of uh, circular footprints uh, there and then there were some light footprints as well that suggested that somebody had crawled up into the craft when it took off. You've got the, the bush that was partially burned and they took samples from that but they found no evidence of any petrochemicals or accelerants on there, which would have suggested, you know, how the bush was set on fire. They found no evidence of that, so it was a, subjected to a heat source that didn't leave any kind of residue behind. They checked for radiation and didn't find anything like that. They um, took soil samples, and I, I was kind of curious, because in the file it said that Holder had taken a bunch of samples that night, and I was wondering what happened to them, and as I was doing research for the book, that was one of the questions I had, what happened to Holder's soil samples, and I came across a report that said, uh, when, once Heineck got there, he gave all that material to to Heineck. So Heineck had the soil samples, and they, they checked that. Uh, Stanford had soil samples that he took that were checked that really didn't uh, reveal anything. Stanford also said that Zamora <clears throat> pointed out a rock to him that had some metal scrapings on it. Right. And... Um, nobody else seemed interested in it, so no one <laughs> seemed interested. Yeah, they just sort of ignored that, and they went off to do this this radio interview. And Stanford went with him. He said the minute the re- the radio interview was over, he rushed back to the scene, found the rock, photographed it on its uh, where it was, so you know he could put it back, and then he uh, he collected it and took it took it back to um, his home in Phoenix. Uh, then he did a dumb thing, which was he um, was showing it to his neighbor outside, and he knocked off some of the bigger pieces of the metallic debris that was left behind. And he said they spent a lot of time going over the area with a magnifying glass and trying to find it, but they couldn't. But there were still some small samples left behind. Eventually, they went to Washington, D.C. with those, uh, and... Uh, Dick Hall arranged for them to be uh, examined at uh, the Goddard Center in uh, uh, in Virginia, right close by. But um, then, there, then there becomes some controversy because according to the official report, there was nothing extraordinary about these metallic samples and they were almost all gone. I think Ray still has the rock and from what he said, there's still some little Samples on it, and they might be able to still be able to analyze it given today's technology. Something they couldn't have done 20 years ago. But the official report, and that appears in the NICAP uh, newspaper, was that it wasn't really anything extraordinary about the metal. I've always been of the opinion. The one thing that's always frightened me is we get a piece, a, a real piece of a flying saucer. I mean, a real piece of a flying saucer. Take it in to have it analyzed, and they say, "Yeah, it's aluminum." <laughs> There's nothing to distinguish it from terrestrially-based metals. Um, But according to Ray, he was told by the scientist who did the investigation, and this is all kind of covered in the book, um, that it was something extraordinary. And then later on, when the official report came out, they said, no, it wasn't. And the scientist suddenly wouldn't take his phone calls and was uh, transferred somewhere else. So Hmm.
3: there's
2: a little bit of controversy about that. And Ray Stanford and Dick Hall kind of fought this thing out in... um, the pages of a MUFON journal, uh, I think in the 1970s when when Ray had uh, published his book, so uh, you know that stuff can be found. And, and and I made copious footnotes throughout the book, and so that everybody who wanted to follow up on where the information came from would be able to do so um, by by reading all of that sort of thing and saying, well, it's the MUFON journal number, which, whatever it is, right and the date and the page number, so you could follow up on it pretty easily.
1: One of the the other things that, that um, you point out in the book, uh, and that is the number of other cases, this is what we don't hear about, are the number of cases involving sightings of what appear to be alien beings. Often they're dismissed as, well, this person had some psychological disorder and so forth. But you really bring this to the fore, that there were a number of celebrated Cases, Whether we're talking about, um, um, was it Flatwoods, West Virginia, and Kelly Hopkins, Kentucky, that case back in was it the early 1950s. But there are others.
2: One of the things that had been sort of a myth in the Project Blue book is there's only one case involving alien creature creatures or sightings of beings around the craft that was labeled unidentified was the um, uh, Zamora sighting. But there are actually two others that I was able to find. There might be more, and I haven't found them, but there were two others where it's not written off as a psychological problem of of, of the person. And, and you look at Kelly Hopkinsville, which was the little creatures that were kind of assaulting the farmhouse, and the people inside panicked and were firing at the creatures and knocking them down, and they'd get up and run off and that sort of thing. But the Air Force, you go to the Air Force file, and you know it's an important contrast. Here's Socorro, and it's treated seriously Um, from from the very beginning. I think it's because there were more than just the Air Force people involved. But you get to Kelly Hopkinsville, which happened um, in I think 1955, so it's you know nine years earlier. Uh, The the attitude was, well, nobody reported to the Air Force, so it doesn't count. We haven't we've got information only, but. There is Air Force report. I mean, there was people who reported it to the Air Force. There was an, uh, an officer on his annual tour, which means he was a reservist, and he was at um, in the area, and he heard it on the radio, and so he made an investigation and reported the stuff to, to the Air Force. So there was an official investigation, but the Air Force claimed no, and, and that was the kind of thing they did. They stayed away from those sightings, and they made it look like you were uh, hallucinating if you saw anything like this. Kelly Hopkinsville, they wrote it off and said, Well, it was probably a monkey that escaped from a from a circus. Well, A, you are shooting at a monkey with a shotgun and you've obviously hit it. There's gonna be dead monkey. There's gonna be evidence left behind, and there was no circus in town for them to uh see it. They they also said, Well, they had been to a holy roller meeting that night, a revival type thing, and they were all hopped up from from that excitement. And so they hallucinated the whole thing, but that wasn't true either. So what you see is, in one respect, the Air Force, the military, the government um, kind of ignoring these sightings or making light of them as best they can to keep keep the people from uh, being interested in kind of putting down the curtain of uh, ridicule. And you look at Socorro, and you contrast that, how it was taken seriously by practically everybody, Although the investigation was pretty ham handed and uh, uh, lacking, but they were they treated they, they treated it seriously. And Hector Quintanilla, who was the uh, chief of Project Blue Book at the time, in his memoirs said, "This is the one case he wanted to explain. He had uh, documentation that allowed him to look at top secret projects, and he went to Alamogordo." Holloman Air Force Base. He went to White Sands and to find out what they were doing at the time, see if it was some kind of black project. And I think that's what Zomora kind of thought it was a black project. I know Sam Shevaz thought it was a black project and they would get in trouble for talking about it. But Quintanilla could find nothing like that that would explain the sightings. And if he could have found it, he would have, he would, it would have been in the Project Blue Book files, uh, at some point. But in his memoirs written many, many years later, he, he said he couldn't find anything, and he, he was convinced that the answer was in Lonnie Zamora's head, meaning that there was something that Lonnie Zamora may have seen or something that influenced him that would would answer mm. what he had seen in that arroyo, but he couldn't get to it. So he had to um, write it off as unidentified, which he did, which you have to applaud him for that, but he also said that he, he knew that the UFO hobbyist would have a field day when he... When he uh, Concluded that it was an unidentified case.
1: You've been to Socorro. I mean, our, uh, your you know colleague Don Schmidt has uh, interviewed a lot of the children of witnesses and so forth. He's in a race against the Undertaker, obviously, to get to the truth. I'm I'm, I'm guessing the same thing in Socorro. Are there still stories to be un, un, unearthed in Socorro relating to this incident? Do you think?
2: Kevin? Well, where we are now is simply that the primary people are gone. And so we're we're left with the secondhand witnesses, and I, I'm just not a fan of that kind of uh, information because it can get so badly garbled in the translation. I know I talked to a fellow in Sequoia named Paul Hart, and he said in the month before Lonnie die, died that uh, he and Lonnie had gone out <clears throat> and toured the area, talked about the case a little bit, so he got a better idea of what Lonnie had to say. And I asked him, you know, well, what did Lonnie say? He said, well, it was between me and Lonnie. I really don't want to talk about it. Zamora's um, wife and his daughter are still around. And I think James Fox is doing a UFO project, has talked to them about it and seen some of the material that Lonnie had. And, and what Fox had told me was that uh, Lonnie had a uh, big box full of letters and documents that he'd received from people who had similar sightings and wanted to tell him what he'd seen. And also that there were some pictures, but when they went through the boxes, they couldn't find the pictures. Which Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's ufology for you. Well there you
1: are. Kevin, uh, here's,
2: here we have a lead to the pictures. Oh, sorry, they're gone too bad.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. Kevin, listen, this, uh, we're out of time. This has been phenomenal. I hope you'll join me again.
2: I would be delighted, but I didn't know you were coming apart. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. I don't
1: Thank you. Why. appreciate it. <laughs> uh, encounter in the Desert, the case for alien contact at Socorro. Kevin Randall. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. I just published the February edition of my new monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. If you missed out, no problem. All you need to do is go to my website, strangeplanet.com. Ca and register. Just enter your name and email address, and you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month for free, starting in February. And once you register, your name automatically goes into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merch. It's so simple. Just go to strangeplanet.ca, enter your name and email address. The Inner Sanctum, yours, absolutely free. Register today at strangeplanet.ca. Coming up next time, we'll meet Wim Hof, the ice man, a Dutch extreme athlete noted for his ability to withstand freezing temperatures.
0: 80 minutes, a controlled experiment. They thought my core body temperature would drastically decrease, and instead of that, uh, it uh, went up. Another thing, uh, the blood which they took while I was in the 80 minutes in the ice, they took the blood to the laboratory and exposed it to a bacteria. The bacteria was then put into my blood, uh, which was in a little tube, etc. Then they saw zero reaction of the bacteria on the blood. The, so the, the bacteria had no chance on my blood, which was taken while I was in the
1: ice. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.